Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. May we begin again today by first retracing some of the truths that we've been given thus far in these words. And although the understanding and the acceptance of these truths vary widely as the brethren in our different churches read and preach them, God really does have only one truth within His Word. There's only one truth here. Often it is beyond our comprehension because it is vast and it has many different ways of understanding. But there is only one truth here. But there are variations, especially in our understanding of what He is saying in these words, all throughout these different denominations, why should there be any variation at all? Why are we seemingly unable to read these words and take them at their simplest face value just as they're written? We spoke about that to some extent last week. But it seems to narrow down to this need that we have within us. It's a preconception of just how God ought to think and how He ought to do things from our perspective. And so then with that preconception, we read these words and we try to fit them within that narrow preconception. Now by that I mean if we have grown up in a Presbyterian church our thoughts immediately go to that way of understanding the words that we're reading. But if we have grown up in an Arminian church, the Methodists, the Baptists, and the like, we read these same words, but with that perspective. But may I say that none of that should ever be. Our minds should always be given over to the Holy Spirit to receive His intended meaning. And we ought to be intentional about that. As we open God's Word, we ought to ask God's Holy Spirit to reveal His intended meaning. After all, it was the Holy Spirit who wrote these words. So should it not be Him who explains it to us? Those words that I've been reading to you most weeks here lately from 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God Himself and are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So then as we read these words, we should understand that they are from the Holy Spirit. And now here, as we examine these words that we just read a moment ago, God wants us to make sure that we know from whence these words come. And He makes it clear. These are from the whole Trinity of God from the Holy Spirit Himself who wrote the words, from God the Father and from God the Son. 
And here he immediately begins to speak of mysterious and wonderful blessings that God the Father and God the Son has done for us in heavenly places, irrespective of who we are and what we have done because these blessings took place there in the heavenly places and before the foundations of the earth were laid. Those words again, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. As we've been learning over these past few weeks, those spiritual blessings spoken about here, they are many and they are wonderful beyond our imagination, beginning with choices. Choices that God made Himself on our behalf and without our asking. Read them again. Just as He chose us in Him, He made that choice without us asking Him. Before the foundations of the world. Now those are strange words indeed. They're too strange for our ordinary mind to comprehend. And that is why for centuries now, men's minds have contended over exactly what they would mean. Some of those differences being what I mentioned a moment ago before this message. There are many who struggle to believe these simple words as they are given. Our Arminian brethren especially struggle that, to believe that God would choose us rather than it being us who choose Him. There always seems to be something within our need to say, but I must do something. There must be something that's required of me. And yes, we do participate. But the choice is clear here. He chose us. By the way, these verses are supported all through other scriptures. And I want us to turn, if you will, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 9. And I want to remind us that the precepts of God are proven by other precepts. And if they are not, then we have to go back and question whether or not we understand the precept. Scripture proves Scripture. And so the words that I just read to you from Ephesians chapter 1, see how they're explained here in Romans chapter 9, and turn to verse 9, if you will. And here God goes to great lengths to explain to us about these choices that He alone makes. And then notice, as I read, that He asks us to consider if we think He's doing something wrong or evil as He makes these choices. He opens it up for us to consider. And in these words, he's hearkening back to his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Listen, beginning in verse 9 of Romans 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by her father Isaac, for the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. The word election is this choosing. Not of works, but of Him who calls. 
It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now here, long before either Jacob or Esau were born, or either of them had had opportunity to do anything good or evil, says that clearly, God is making a clear choice between these two men. And this is no small choice. Jacob and his lineage would become the very heart and soul of all who believe in God. All the way from those children of his, the children of Israel, and then continuing on down now to us who believe in Christ today. This choice, Jacob became the heart and soul, the beginning of all that we believe. And as uncomfortable as it might be to some who read these words, listen, Jacob's brother Esau was not chosen. And it was not because of anything that Esau did wrong. It's also said here that God made that choice before they either had an opportunity to do good or evil And it wasn't that God waited to look ahead to see with his foreknowledge to see if Esau was going to be the sinner that he became. None of that's said here. It's just said plainly that before they had an opportunity to do anything good or evil, God chose Jacob over Esau. It was purely and simply because God is God. And God has a plan, and Esau was not part of that plan. Now, and you recall, the same kind of choice was made between Isaac and Ishmael. God chose Isaac to be the chosen one from whom the, our whole lineage would lead. Ishmael was not. Here as God lays out before us the details of this choice between Jacob and Esau, he asks us to consider what he has done in making those choices. Verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is God unrighteous because he chose Jacob and did not choose Esau? Folks, it's within words, these words and others like them that men and women throughout church denominations bring forth a wide and contentious difference in belief and understanding. Our Arminian brethren find it so hard to believe that God could make such choices. And how often have you and I, I have heard often, verbalizing this disagreement by saying, well, I just cannot believe in a God who will not give a person at least one chance for salvation. That's a very logical, emotional thought. But folks, listen, God does not waver in His words here. Instead of giving some soothing explanation as to why He does that, He simply answers His own question by saying, Certainly not. I am not unrighteous. Verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Now let me remind you again, these are the words of the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Apostle Paul penned these words, but these are the words of God Himself. 
And he's declaring to us, that no matter what we might think about God seemingly making an arbitrary choice between Jacob and Esau, he still, ever and always, remains righteous in what he's doing. Now let's read further. The Holy Spirit goes on further and he emphasizes this choice making by giving another example. This is this time with Pharaoh in Egypt, verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills or him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Not of a person and their works and their decision making. It is not of the person, God is saying, but it is of God who shows mercy. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you. Folks, listen. What was the purpose of Pharaoh? Pharaoh was to fight with all that he had against God's plan. That's the purpose he's talking about here. It was not a good purpose. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, that I may show my power in you. Remember all the plagues that God put upon the Egyptian people. He says, so that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he will, and whom he wills, he hardens. You'll recall that as God spoke to Moses, he said, Moses, I want you to go and say to Pharaoh, let my people go, but Moses, I want you to understand that I will harden Pharaoh's heart before you get there. Yes, Pharaoh had a hard heart, and it speaks of that. But God hardened his heart. Is that fair? That's the question that's always asked. And God, knowing those kinds of thoughts and our rejection of him making those seemingly arbitrary choices, he says in verse 19, look there, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? In other words, how can God hold a person accountable? How can he hold Pharaoh? How can he hold Judas or any of these others accountable if they didn't know any better? If he hardened their heart? And they didn't have an opportunity to turn their hearts to him? Now human rationale does not like or accept these words of God. And churches filled with people today reject these words. Saying, well, God just must have meant something else. Or another one that they like to use is that, well, maybe the translators translated these words wrongly. I mentioned some of that a moment ago before the service. And so because of this inability to accept what God is saying because it does not fit into our manner of thinking. Whole denominations end up rewording these words in order to fit a preferred manner of thinking. But folks, listen, these words are what they are. And they stand as they are. And these words do not make God unrighteous. And such standing up in the face of God and demanding that He answer us for these things that we don't understand 
will not cause God to change. I'm reminded of another old saint who didn't understand why God was doing what he was doing. And for most of the book that's named after him, Job stood there and cried out to God for God to explain himself for all the suffering that that he, Job, was, was enduring. So finally after 37 chapters of Job crying out and bewailing his plight, God seemed to had simply had enough of Job's crying out. And he said to Job, Who is this who darkens my counsel without knowledge? Now prepare yourself, Job, like a man, and I'll question you, and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Folks, listen. That is the response that God will have and does have to any and all who would dare stand there in His face and make such foolish statements as, well, I just can't believe in a God who would do this thing or that thing that I don't agree with. Now, our Bible scholars tell us that when God wants to make His point emphatic and final, He says it three times. And so here again in chapter 9, is the third time that God makes the same point. Verse 20. Indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. One a noble, one an ignoble. One for righteousness and one for wrath. Again, I do fear that those who would stand in judgment of God, condemning Him for the choices that He makes, I fear for them. May I declare to you that anyone who takes a position of being judgmental of God will surely be judged using the same measure of judgment that they use on God. It's a scripture verse. He says, by the same measure in which you judge, you will be judged. If a person rejects God and His ways, then God will likewise reject that person. And eternally so. Now again, some would try to soften their position uh, to God and say, uh, but God just, He's just not saying what it looks like he's saying here. He must mean something else. And then right after saying those words, begin to then try to reformulate what they think God meant. But there are penalties, folks, for doing that. There are penalties for us adding and taking away from these scriptures. And we must never be found doing that. Now, again, with all these things said, How can we answer the question that we've been pondering, though, over these past few weeks? The question about how we might reconcile the goodness and the mercy of God with all of these seemingly arbitrary choices that He so obviously makes. Perhaps here in verse 22 of Romans 9, we'll begin to find some of the answer. Verse 22, What if God, wanting to show His wrath, 
and to make his power known, endured with much suffering, much long suffering and patience, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Now the foundational understanding of what these words give to us here is that literally every person that's ever born on this earth is born with a sinful nature, wicked and depraved and deserving of no mercy at all, that if given what each of us truly deserve, we would all spend an eternity in hell. But then, God in His mercy decided to choose some. And He does. He chooses some to show mercy. Not all, but at least some, perhaps a lot. Instead of us thanking and praising Him for the mercy that He does show, we immediately want to condemn Him for not saving everyone, or at least giving everyone a chance at salvation. Now may I say that I confess to you that I do not understand the mind of God in these matters. I don't understand them either. But just because I'm not able to comprehend the mind of God in such things as these, that does not make God wrong. That does not make Him unrighteous in the choices that He makes. And I dare not stand here in judgment of Him for those choices. The greatest of all truths is that God is good. He is always good. That truth is reassured to us throughout all these scriptures over and over again. And so you and I must, by faith, believe it to be true, even when we don't understand His manner of goodness. Now then, one last thing before we close. I want to bring back another question that lies at the center of this studying at the heart of the contention and the disagreement that keeps us and our churches from being one in, in our worship of the Lord. And it's the simplest part of this, these words given to us here. The question is, is everyone chosen by God? Or does everyone have the free will ability to make their own choices? In its simplest form, that's the question that's being asked in this. Does God choose those who will receive Him, leaving the others to spend an eternity in hell? Or is God merciful and gracious to all, with everyone having an opportunity to be saved? That's the question. Unfortunately, these two widely separated beliefs do seem to be the only ones that most of our churches accept. And so you have the Arminian churches, the Baptists, Methodists, the Pentecostals would say, but of course everyone has an opportunity to be saved. Then you have the Reformed churches, such as ours, that would say, but wait, God makes choices. Is it all or nothing? By the way, both sides of this argument are well entrenched, refusing to bulge. 
My question for us is, are these two doctrines, that everyone has an opportunity to be saved, everyone, or everyone is chosen, they may not be as widely separated as we might think, simply because of the word everyone. Or here in Ephesians chapter 1, for He chose us. I confess to you, I don't know who us is. The original us, here it says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Does that come on down to everyone who has ever then believed? Is there a possibility that these opposing views, though they seem to be widely different, is there a possibility of a middle ground? And I know that those who would, on either side of the argument, would disagree with me even considering that question. But the simple fact is that both of these doctrines, the doctrine of God's foreordination, which he speaks of right here, having predestined us, that's foreordination, same word, for having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. That's the one doctrine. God's foreordination. And then that of free will, which says, whosoever will. Whosoever will confess me will be saved. Both of those are solidly given doctrine within these scriptures. Both of them are true. Both of them are true. And as I said in a message, I believe it was last week, perhaps it boils down to just the simple fact that God makes covenants with us and He makes other covenants with us. And in His covenant of grace, He might not only have an either or, either one way or the other, but He also may have an and. And I do not want to add to these scriptures, and so I dare not do that. But could it be possible within God's covenant of grace that He both chooses some souls to come to Him for salvation, but also allows others to have their free will choices? What is God saying to us here in His Word? Not what do I think, not what do I want to think, but what is God saying to us here? We cannot be so well entrenched that we would not ask the Lord to tell us what He means. I'll close with this. I choose to rejoice in this mystery because I know that regardless of how the choice was made to save my own soul, I am saved. I am saved. And thanks be to God that I am. However I came to Him, thanks be to God I am saved. What about those people who are not chosen? I don't know. God says some are for ignoble purposes. I don't know about them. But I do know that God is completely and utterly righteous and trustworthy. So I'll not condemn him for those choices. He is God and he is good in all that he does. Let me pray.